9. The Nativity. For instance, as I outrode this Anders last night, of three jolly shepherds I saw a sight, and all about their fold a star shone bright, they sang early turlo. So merrily the shepherds their pipes can blow, down from heaven, from heaven so high, of angels there came a great company with mirth, and joy, and great solemnity, they sang early turlo. So merrily the shepherds their pipes can blow. Such songs were taken home by the audience and sung for a season, as a popular tune is now caught from the stage and sung on the streets, and at times the whole audience would very likely join in the chorus. After these plays were written according to the general outline of the Bible stories, no change was tolerated, the audience insisting, like children at Punch and Judy, upon seeing the same things year after year. No originality in plot or treatment was possible. Therefore, the only variety was in new songs and jokes, and in the pranks of the devil. Childish as such plays seem to us, they are part of the religious development of all uneducated people. Even now the Persian play of the Martyrdom of Arli is celebrated yearly, and the famous Passion Play, a true miracle, is given every ten years at Oberammergau. 2. The Moral Period of the Drama The second or moral period of the drama is shown by the increasing prevalence of the morality plays. In these the characters were allegorical personages, life, death, repentance, goodness, love, greed, and other virtues and vices. The moralities may be regarded, therefore, as the dramatic counterpart of the once popular allegorical poetry exemplified by the romance of the rose. It did not occur to our first and known dramatists to portray men and women as they are until they had first made characters of abstract human qualities. Nevertheless, the morality marks a distinct advance over the miracle in that it gave free scope to the imagination for new plots and incidents. In Spain and Portugal these plays, under the name Otto, were wonderfully developed by the genius of Calderon and Gil Vicente, but in England the morality was a dreary kind of performance, like the allegorical poetry which preceded it. To enliven the audience the devil of the miracle plays was introduced, and another lively personage called the vice was the predecessor of our modern clown and jester. His business was to torment the virtues by mischievous pranks, and especially to make the devil's life a burden by beating him with a bladder or a wooden sword at every opportunity. The morality generally ended in the triumph of virtue, the devil leaping into hell mount with vice on his back. The best known of the moralities is every man which has recently been revived in England and America. The subject of the play is the summoning of every man by death, and the moral is that nothing can take away the terror of the inevitable summons but an honest life and the comforts of religion. In its dramatic unity it suggests the pure Greek drama, there is no change of time or scene, and the stage is never empty from the beginning to the end of the performance. Other well-known moralities are the pride of life, Hickus Corner, and Castle of Perseverance. In the latter, Man is represented as shut up in a castle garrisoned by the virtues and besieged by the vices, like the miracle plays. Most of the old moralities are of a known date and origin. Of the known authors of moralities, two of the best are John Skelton, who wrote Magnificence, and probably also The Necromancer and Sir David Lindsay 1490-1555, the poet of the Scotch Reformation, whose religious business it was to make rulers uncomfortable by telling them unpleasant truths in the form of poetry. With these men a new element enters into the moralities. They satirize or denounce abuses of church and state, and introduce living personages thinly disguised as allegories, so that the stage first becomes a power in shaping events and correcting abuses. The interludes, 
it is impossible to draw any accurate line of distinction between the moralities and interludes. In general we may think of the latter as dramatic scenes, sometimes given by themselves usually with music and singing at banquets and entertainments where a little fun was wanted, and again slipped into a miracle play to enliven the audience after a solemn scene. Thus on the margin of a page of one of the old Chester plays we read, The boy and fig when the kings are gone. Certainly this was no part of the original scene between Herod and the three kings. So also the quarrel between Noah and his wife is probably a late addition to an old play. The interludes originated, undoubtedly, in a sense of humor, and to John Haywood 1497-1580, a favorite retainer and jester at the court of Mary, is due the credit for raising the interlude to the distinct dramatic form known as comedy. Haywood's interludes were written between 1520 and 1540. His most famous is, The Four Peas, a contest of wit between a, pardoner, a palmer, a peddler and a potikari. The characters here strongly suggest those of Chaucer. Another interesting interlude is called, The Play of the Weather. In this Jupiter and the gods assemble to listen to complaints about the weather and to reform abuses. Naturally everybody wants his own kind of weather. The climax is reached by a boy who announces that a boy's pleasure consists in two things catching birds and throwing snowballs, and begs for the weather to be such that he can always do both. Jupiter decides that he will do just as he pleases about the weather, and everybody goes home satisfied. All these early plays were written, for the most part, in a mingling of prose and wretched doggerel, and add nothing to our literature. Their great work was to train actors, to keep alive the dramatic spirit, and to prepare the way for the true drama. 3. The artistic period of the drama. The artistic is the final stage in the development of the English drama. It differs radically from the other two in that its chief purpose is not to point a moral but to represent human life as it is. The artistic drama may have purpose, no less than the miracle play. But the motive is always subordinate to the chief end of representing life itself. The first true play in English, with a regular plot, divided into acts and scenes, is probably the comedy. Ralph Royster Doyster, it was written by Nicholas Udall, master of Eton, and later of Westminster School, and was first acted by his schoolboy sometime before 1556. The story is that of a conceited fop in love with a widow, who is already engaged to another man. The play is an adaptation of the Miles Gloriosus, a classic comedy by Plautus, and the English characters are more or less artificial, but as furnishing a model of a clear plot and natural dialogue. The influence of this first comedy, with its mixture of classic and English elements, can hardly be overestimated. The next play, Gammer Gurdon's Needle, C.I.R., 1562, is a domestic comedy, a true bit of English realism, representing the life of the peasant class. Gammer Gurdon is patching the leather breeches of her man Hodge, when Gib, the cat, gets into the milk pan, while Gammer chases the cat the family needle is lost. A veritable calamity in those days. The whole household is turned upside down, and the neighbors are dragged into the affair. Various comical situations are brought about by Dickon, a thieving vagabond, who tells Gammer that her neighbor, Dame Chat, has taken her needle, and who then hurries to tell Dame Chat that she is accused by Gammer of stealing a favorite rooster. Naturally there is a terrible row when the two irate old women meet and misunderstand each other. Dickon also drags Dr. Rat the curate, into the quarrel by telling him that, if he will but creep into Dame Chat's cottage by a hidden way, he will find her using the stolen needle, 
Bandicon secretly warns Dame Chat that Gamergurden's man Hodge is coming to steal her chickens, and the old woman hides in the dark passage and cudgels the curate soundly with the door bar. All the parties are finally brought before the justice, when Hodge suddenly and painfully finds the lost needle which is all the while stuck in his leather breeches and the scene ends uproariously for both audience and actors. This first holy English comedy is full of fun and coarse humor, and is wonderfully true to the life it represents. It was long attributed to John Still, afterwards Bishop of Bath, but the authorship is now definitely assigned to William Stevenson. Our earliest edition of the play was printed in 1575, but a similar play called, Decon of Bedlam, was licensed in 1552, twelve years before Shakespeare's birth. To show the spirit and the metrical form of the play we give a fragment of the boy's description of the dullard Hodge trying to light a fire on the hearth from the cat's eyes and another fragment of the old drinking song at the beginning of the second act. At last in a dark corner two sparks he thought he sees which were ended. Not else but jib our cat's two eyes. Puff! Quoth Hodge, thinking thirty to have fire without doubt, with that jib shut her two eyes. And so the fire was out, and by and by them opened, even as they were before, with that the sparks appeared, even as they had done of yore. And, even as Hodge blew the fire, as he did think, jib, as she felt the blast, straightway began to wink, Il Hodge fell of southwestering, as came best to his turn, the fear was sure bewicked, and therefore would not burn, at last jib up the stairs, among the old posts and pins, and Hodge he hide him after till broke were both his shins, cursing and southwestering knots, were never of his mocking, that jib would fire the house if that she were not taken, first Assange, back and said, go bear, go bear, Boof foot and hand, go cold, uh, but, belly, God send thee good ale in often, whether it be new or old, I cannot eat a but little meat, my stomach is not good, but sure I think e that I can drink with him that wears a hood, thoth I go bare, take ye no care, I am nothing to cold, uh, I stuff my skin so full within a violy good ale and old, back and sit, go bare, etc., our first tragedy, Gorbovic was written by Thomas Sackville and Thomas Norton, and was acted in 1562, only two years before the birth of Shakespeare. It is remarkable not only as our first tragedy, but as the first play to be written in blank verse, the latter being most significant, since it started the drama into the style of verse best suited to the genius of English playwrights. The story of Gorbovic is taken from the early annals of Britain and recalls the story used by Shakespeare in King Lear. Gorbovic King of Britain, divides his kingdom between his sons Ferex and Porix, the sons quarrel, and Porix, the younger, slays his brother, who is the queen's favorite, Vadina, the queen, slays Porix in revenge, the people rebel and slay Vadina and Gorbovic, then the nobles kill the rebels, and in turn fall to fighting each other, the line of Brutus being extinct with the death of Gorbovic, the country falls into anarchy, with rebels, nobles, and a Scottish invader all fighting for the right of succession. The curtain falls upon a scene of bloodshed and utter confusion. The artistic finish of this first tragedy is marred by the author's evident purpose to persuade Elizabeth to marry. It aims to show the danger to which England is exposed by the uncertainty of succession. Otherwise the plan of the play follows the classical rule of Seneca. There is very little action on the stage, bloodshed and battle are announced by a messenger, and the chorus, of four old men of Britain sums up the situation with a few moral observations at the end of each of the first four acts. Classical influence upon the drama. 
the revival of Latin literature had a decided influence upon the English drama as it developed from the miracle plays. In the 15th century English teachers, in order to increase the interest in Latin, began to let their boys act the plays which they had read as literature, precisely as our colleges now present Greek or German plays at the yearly festivals. Seneca was the favorite Latin author, and all his tragedies were translated into English between 1559 and 1581. This was the exact period in which the first English playwrights were shaping their own ideas, but the severe simplicity of the classical drama seemed at first only to hamper the exuberant English spirit. To understand this, one has only to compare a tragedy of Seneca or of Euripides with one of Shakespeare, and see how widely the two masters differ in methods. In the classic play the so-called dramatic unities of time, place, and action were strictly observed. Time and place must remain the same, the play could represent a period of only a few hours, and whatever action was introduced must take place at the spot where the play began. The characters, therefore, must remain unchanged throughout, there was no possibility of the child becoming a man, or of the man's growth with changing circumstances, as the play was within doors. All vigorous action was deemed out of place on the stage, and battles and important events were simply announced by a messenger. The classic drama also drew a sharp line between tragedy and comedy, all fun being rigorously excluded from serious representations. The English drama, on the other hand, strove to represent the whole sweep of life in a single play. The scene changed rapidly, the same actors appeared now at home, now at court, now on the battlefield and vigorous action filled the stage before the eyes of the spectators. The child of one act appeared as the man of the next, and the imagination of the spectator was called upon to bridge the gaps from place to place and from year to year. So the dramatist had free scope to present all life in a single place and a single hour. Moreover, since the world is always laughing and always crying at the same moment, tragedy and comedy were presented side by side, as they are in life itself. As Hamlet sings, after the play that amused the court but struck the king with deadly fear, why, let the stricken deer go weep, the hard and called play, for some must watch, while some must sleep, so runs the world away, naturally, with these two ideals struggling to master the English drama, two schools of writers arose, the university two schools wits, as men of learning were called, generally of drama it held the classical ideal, and ridiculed the crudeness of the new English plays. Sackville and Norton were of this class, and Gorbodic was classic in its construction. In the defense of poesy, Sidney upholds the classics and ridicules the too ambitious scope of the English drama. Against these were the popular playwrights, Lily, Peel, Green, Marlowe, and many others, who recognized the English love of action and disregarded the dramatic unities in their endeavor to present life as it is. In the end the native drama prevailed aided by the popular taste which had been trained by four centuries of miracles. Our first plays, especially of the romantic type, were extremely crude and often led to ridiculously extravagant scenes, and here is where the classic drama exercised an immense influence for good, by insisting upon beauty of form and definiteness of structure at a time when the tendency was to satisfy a taste for stage spectacles without regard to either. In the year 1574 a royal permit to Lord Leicester's actors allowed them to give plays anywhere throughout our realm of England, and this must be regarded as the beginning of the regular drama. Two years later the first playhouse, known as the Theatre, 
was built for these actors by James Burbage in Finsbury Fields, just north of London. It was in this theatre that Shakespeare probably found employment when he first came to the city. The success of this venture was immediate, and the next 30 years saw a score of theatrical companies, at least seven regular theatres, and a dozen or more in yards permanently fitted for the giving of plays, all established in the city and its immediate suburbs. The growth seems all the more remarkable when we remember that the London of those days would now be considered a small city, having in 1600 only about a hundred thousand inhabitants. A Dutch traveller, Johannes Dewitt, who visited London in 1596, has given us the only contemporary drawing we possess of the interior of one of these theatres. They were built of stone and wood, round or octagonal in shape, and without a roof, being simply an enclosed courtyard. At one side was the stage, and before it on the bare ground, or pit, stood that large part of the audience who could afford to pay only an admission fee. The players and these groundlings were exposed to the weather, those that paid for seats were in galleries sheltered by a narrow porch roof projecting inwards from the encircling walls, while the young nobles and gallants, who came to be seen and who could afford the extra fee, took seats on the stage itself and smoked and chaffed the actors and threw nuts at the groundlings. The whole idea of these first theatres, according to DeWitt, was like that of the Roman amphitheatre, and the resemblance was heightened by the fact that, when no play was on the boards, the stage might be taken away and the pit given over to bull and bear baiting. In all these theatres, probably, the stage consisted of a bare platform, with a curtain or traverse across the middle, separating the front from the rear stage. On the latter unexpected scenes or characters were discovered by simply drawing the curtain aside. At first little or no scenery was used, a gilded sign being the only announcement of a change of scene, and this very lack of scenery led to better acting, since the actors must be realistic enough to make the audience forget its shabby surroundings. By Shakespeare's day, however, painted scenery had appeared, first at university plays, and then in the regular theaters. In all our first plays female parts were taken by boy actors, who evidently were more distressing than the crude scenery, for contemporary literature has many satirical references to their acting, and even the tolerant Shakespeare writes, some squeaking Cleopatra boy my greatness, however that may be, the stage was deemed unfit for women, and actresses were unknown in England until after the restoration, Shakespeare's predecessors in the drama. The English drama as it developed from the miracle plays has an interesting history. It began with schoolmasters, like Udall, who translated and adapted Latin plays for their boys to act, and who were naturally governed by classic ideals. It was continued by the choir masters of St. Paul and the Royal and the Queen's Chapel, whose companies of choir boy actors were famous in London and rivaled the players of the regular theatres. These choir masters were our first stage managers. They began with masks and interludes and the dramatic presentation of classic myths modeled after the Italians, but some of them, like Richard Edwards' choir master of the Queen's Chapel in 1561, soon added farces from English country life and dramatized some of Chaucer's stories. Finally, the regular playwrights, Kidd, Nash, Lily, Peel, Green, and Marlowe, brought the English drama to the point where Shakespeare began to experiment upon it. Each of these playwrights added or emphasized some essential element in the drama, which appeared later in the work of Shakespeare. Thus John Lilly 1554, 1606, 
who is now known chiefly as having developed the pernicious literary style called Euphuism, is one of the most influential of the early dramatists. His court comedies are remarkable for their witty dialogue and for being our first plays to aim definitely at unity and artistic finish. Thomas Kidd's Spanish tragedy C. 1585 first gives us the drama, or rather the melodrama, of passion, copied by Marlowe and Shakespeare. This was the most popular of the early Elizabethan plays, it was revised again and again, and Ben Jonson is said to have written one version and to have acted the chief part of Hieronimo, and Robert Greene 1558-1592 plays the chief part in the early development of romantic comedy, and gives us some excellent scenes of English country life in plays like Friar Bacon and Friar Dingley. Even a brief glance at the life and work of these first playwrights shows three noteworthy things which have a bearing on Shakespeare's career. One these men were usually actors as well as dramatists. They knew the stage and the audience. And in writing their plays they remembered not only the actor's part but also the audience's love for stories and brave spectacles. Will it act well? And will it please our audience? Word are the questions of chief concern to our early dramatists. To their training began as actors. Then they revised old plays, and finally became independent writers. In this their work shows an exact parallel with that of Shakespeare. 3. They often worked together, probably as Shakespeare worked with Marlowe and Fletcher, either in revising old plays or in creating new ones. They had a common store of material from which they derived their stories and characters, hence their frequent repetition of names, and they often produced two or more plays on the same subject. Much of Shakespeare's work depends as we shall see, on previous plays, and even his Hamlet uses the material of an earlier play of the same name, probably by Kidd, which was well known to the London stage in 1589, some twelve years before Shakespeare's great work was written. All these things are significant, if we are to understand the Elizabethan drama and the man who brought it to perfection. Shakespeare was not simply a great genius, he was also a great worker and he developed in exactly the same way as did all his fellow craftsmen, and, contrary to the prevalent opinion, the Elizabethan drama is not a Minerva-like creation, springing full-grown from the head of one man, it is rather an orderly though rapid development, in which many men bore a part, all our early dramatists are worthy of study for the part they played in the development of the drama, but we can here consider only one, the most typical of all, whose best work is often ranked with that of Shakespeare, Christopher Marlowe 1564-1593 Marlowe is one of the most suggestive figures of the English Renaissance, and the greatest of Shakespeare's predecessors. The glory of the Elizabethan drama dates from his Tamburlaine 1587, wherein the whole restless temper of the age finds expression, nature, that framed us of four elements warring within our breasts for regiment, doth teach us all to have aspiring minds our souls whose faculties can comprehend the wondrous architecture of the world, and measure every wandering planet's course, still climbing after knowledge infinite, and always moving as the restless spheres will us to wear ourselves and never rest. Tamburlaine. Point III. VII. Life. Marlowe was born in Canterbury, only a few months before Shakespeare. He was the son of a poor shoemaker but through the kindness of a patron was educated at the town grammar school and then at Cambridge. When he came to London C. 1584, his soul was surging with the ideals of the Renaissance, which later found expression in Faustus, the scholar longing for unlimited knowledge and for power to grasp the universe. Unfortunately, 
Marlowe had also the unbridled passions which mark the early, or pagan renaissance, as Taine calls it, and the conceit of a young man just entering the realms of knowledge. He became an actor and lived in a low tavern atmosphere of excess and wretchedness. In 1587, when but 23 years old, he produced Tamburlaine, which brought him instant recognition. Thereafter, notwithstanding his wretched life, he holds steadily to a high literary purpose. Though all his plays abound in violence, no doubt reflecting many of the violent scenes in which he lived, he develops his mighty line and depicts great scenes in magnificent bursts of poetry, such as the stage had never heard before. In five years, while Shakespeare was serving his apprenticeship, Marlowe produced all his great work. Then he was stabbed in a drunken brawl and died wretchedly. As he had lived, the epilogue of Faustus might be written across his tombstone. Cut is the branch that might have grown full straight, and burned is Apollo's laurel bough that sometime grew within this learned man. Marlowe's works, in addition to the poem Hero and Leander, to which we have referred, Marlowe is famous for four dramas, now known as the Marlowe-esque or one-man type of tragedy, each revolving about one central personality who is consumed by the lust of power. The first of these is Tamburlaine, the story of Timur the Tartar. Timur begins as a shepherd chief who first rebels and then triumphs over the Persian king. Intoxicated by his success, Timur rushes like a tempest over the whole east, seated on his chariot drawn by captive kings, with a caged emperor before him. He boasts of his power which overrides all things. Then, afflicted with disease, he raves against the gods and would overthrow them as he has overthrown earthly rulers. Tamburlaine is an epic rather than a drama but one can understand its instant success with a people only half-civilized, fond of military glory, and the instant adoption of its mighty line as the instrument of all dramatic expression. Faustus, the second play, is one of the best of Marlowe's works. The story is that of a scholar who longs for infinite knowledge, and who turns from theology, philosophy, medicine, and law, the four sciences of the time, to the study of magic much as a child might turn from jewels to tinsel and colored paper. In order to learn magic he sells himself to the devil, on condition that he shall have 24 years of absolute power and knowledge. The play is the story of those 24 years. Like Tamburlaine, it is lacking in dramatic construction, but has an unusual number of passages of rare poetic beauty. Milton's Satan suggests strongly that the author of Paradise Lost had access to Faustus and used it as he may also have used Tamburlaine, for the magnificent panorama displayed by Satan in Paradise Regained. For instance, more than fifty years before Milton's hero says, Which way I turn is hell, myself and hell. Marlowe had written, Faust, how comes it then that thou art out of hell? Mephisto, why this is hell, nor am I out of it. Hell hath no limits, nor is circumscribed in oneself place, for where we are is hell, and where hell is there must we ever be. Marlowe's third play is The Jew of Malta, a study of the lust for wealth, which centers about Barabbas, a terrible old money lender, strongly suggestive of Shylock in The Merchant of Venice. The first part of the play is well constructed, showing a decided advance, but the last part is an accumulation of melodramatic horrors. Barabbas is checked in his murderous career by falling into a boiling cauldron which he had prepared for another, and dies blaspheming his only regret being that he has not done more evil in his life. Marlowe's last play is Edward I.I., a tragic study of a king's weakness and misery, in point of style and dramatic construction. It is by far the best of Marlowe's plays, 
and is a worthy predecessor of Shakespeare's historical drama. Marlowe is the only dramatist of the time who is ever compared with Shakespeare, when we remember that he died at 29, probably before Shakespeare had produced a single great play. We must wonder what he might have done had he outlived his wretched youth and become a man. Here and there his work is remarkable for its splendid imagination, for the stateliness of its verse, and for its rare bits of poetic beauty, but in dramatic instinct, in wide knowledge of human life, in humor, in delineation of woman's character, in the delicate fancy which presents an aerial as perfectly as a Macbeth, in a word, in all that makes a dramatic genius, Shakespeare stands alone, Marlowe simply prepared the way for the master who was to follow, variety of the early drama, be 30 years between our first regular English plays and Shakespeare's first comedy witnessed a development of the drama which astonishes us both by its rapidity and variety. We shall better appreciate Shakespeare's work if we glance for a moment at the plays that preceded him, and note how he covers the whole field and writes almost every form and variety of the drama known to his age. First in importance, or at least in popular interest, are the new chronicle plays founded upon historical events and characters, they show the strong national spirit of the Elizabethan age, and their popularity was due largely to the fact that audiences came to the theaters partly to gratify their awakened national spirit and to get their first knowledge of national history. Some of the moralities, like Bell's Ken Johan 1538, are crude chronicle plays, and the early Robin Hood plays and the first tragedy, Gorbotic show the same awakened popular interest in English history. During the reign of Elizabeth the popular chronicle plays increased till we have the record of over 220, half of which are still extant, dealing with almost every important character, real or legendary, in English history. Of Shakespeare's 37 dramas, 10 are true chronicle plays of English kings, 3 are from the legendary annals of Britain, and 3 more are from the history of other nations. Other types of the early drama are less clearly defined, but we may sum them up under a few general heads. When the domestic drama began with crude home scenes introduced into the miracles and developed in a score of different ways, from the coarse humor of Gammer Gurdon's Needle to the comedy of manners of Johnson and the later dramatists, Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew and Merry Wives of Windsor belong to this class. To the so-called court comedy is the opposite of the former in that it represented a different kind of life and was intended for a different audience. It was marked by elaborate dialogue, by jests, retorts, and endless plays on words, rather than by action. It was made popular by Lily's success, and was imitated in Shakespeare's first or Lillian comedies, such as Love's Labor's Lost, and the complicated to Gentlemen of Verona. Three romantic comedy and romantic tragedy suggest the most artistic and finished types of the drama, which were experimented upon by Peel, Green, and Marlowe, and were brought to perfection in The Merchant of Venice, Romeo and Juliet, and The Tempest, for in addition to the above types were several others, the classical plays, 